As we had prepared to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We desire to keep your righteous rules. Give us life, O Lord, according to your word. Your testimonies are our heritage forever, for they are the joy of our hearts. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit, open now your word to us and incline our hearts to follow it forever and hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bibles, and most of them, it's on page 1272. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles, which is the fancy way we refer to First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, and Titus comes after Second Timothy and before Philemon in the New Testament. Call them pastoral epistles because epistle means letters, and they're written to pastors. So that's uh, not rocket science. Um, that's why we call them that. And so this is one of those instructions that comes to Titus as a minister. And so we want to read together um, the whole section of this. Uh, passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, but we're going to focus our attention particularly on verses 4 through 7. Uh, But to get the context, we'll read verses 1 through 8. So let's pay careful attention now, for this is God's own word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Thus far the reading of God's Word. May He bless it to us. Uh, Five times in the pastoral epistles, five times in those instructions to pastors, Paul uses the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. Or another way of saying that is, faithful is the saying. Um, He does that five times in particular. And so scholars looking at that have said, now when Paul says that, what does he mean? Why does he say that? And the general consensus is it's both a way of citing a Christian truth that God's people will already know, so that Paul is referring to something that's already familiar to them, um, and doing it by way of emphasis. Right? If I were to say to you, now what I'm about to say is trustworthy and worth listening to, And what I'm about to say is this. See how that kind of loads you up to listen to what I'm about to say? Jesus would do that in his teaching. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, That's a way of emphasizing and drawing our attention to an important thing that's about to be said. 
And here in our passage is one of those occasions. In, in, in verse 8, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. And the saying he's referring to is what has just come before. Um, the, the saying that he has just given to them in verses probably 4 through 7. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly where the saying begins and ends, and all of Scripture is a faithful saying. Uh, so there have been some disputes about it, but I think it's right to take it as verses 4 through 7. Um, and I'm particularly indebted to George Knight, who wrote a whole book just on the faithful sayings of the pastoral epistles. His insights on this passage are very helpful, and I'm indebted to him uh, for, my, for the insights that I've, I've benefited from for our sermon tonight. Um, so I'm not preaching his book, but um, he, he is very helpful in saying, now when, when, these thi- when these things happen, how are we to take them? How are we to listen to them? Specifically, this saying that's trustworthy in Titus, how are we to listen to it? How are we to, to pay attention to what Paul is saying here? And it seems that verses 4 through 7 are the faithful saying, the, the saying that is trustworthy, that he particularly wants to highlight and have his people pay attention to and take note of. And this is really important for us as it talks to us about the glorious salvation that God has worked and helpful particularly for showing us what baptism is signifying to us, how baptism reminds us of the salvation that Paul pictures for us here and pictures as being well known to the church. And so that's what we want to do tonight is think about this glorious passage of our salvation Um, And then relate it to the picture of baptism and show how baptism reinforces this this wonderful picture of salvation that Paul gives us here. So we want to understand this passage sort of in three ways this evening. Because we see wonderfully the motivation for our salvation, then the means of our salvation, and finally the making of our salvation. Uh, the whole of our salvation is pictured for us in these verses. Maybe when I, when I read these verses, they are familiar to you. They are precious to you as being wonderful statements of the salvation that God has worked. And so we want to look at them this evening and think about the motivation for our salvation, the means of our salvation, and the making of our salvation that these verses talk about. Uh, this is a glorious passage about salvation. Um, And you might have noticed that it's nestled between two commands. Uh, Paul gives widespread commands at the beginning of how we are to love one another, how we are to love even our governments. Um, And then, as if Paul is anticipating someone saying, well, that's really hard. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Speak evil of no one. Uh, Avoid quarreling. How are we going to do all of these things? Where do we find the motivation? Um, Because people are sometimes rotten. And Paul goes on to say, well, you know, our God comes to us and reminds us that you too were also rotten. And when you were rotten, God loved you. That's the motivation for the good works of those who want to follow Christ. To remember that He loved us when we were unlovable. So when His call to love an unlovable world comes to us and we say, how can we do that? We're saying we're to look to God as those who serve God. And so it, it begins and ends with, with these calls to service, these calls to love neighbor. Um, and it's all grounded in the glorious salvation that God has worked. So I just want to acknowledge that we're considering just a small part of this broader argument that Paul makes and looking particularly about how he describes the love of God for his people. 
Because Paul makes a wonderful statement about the motivation of salvation. What has moved our God to act toward us as he has? To move towards us in salvation. Was it something in us that God was moved by in coming to us? No, it's a pretty bleak picture that's given of us in verse 3. Right? Being hated and hating, that's who we were. Um, following all kinds of things. It wasn't anything in us. Paul makes that crystal clear. It was not because of works done by us in righteousness. It wasn't because of that we were good people that God reached out to us. It wasn't something in us that caused him to act. It was something in him. And Paul beautifully describes what that is in God that causes him to reach out to people such as are described in verse 3. And what is it that causes God to reach out to us? It's the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. It's the goodness and loving kindness that's in God that caused Him to reach out to us. Both those words are worth meditating on. God's goodness caused Him to reach out to us. That word could be translated kindness. Uh, It means to provide something beneficial to someone as an act of kindness. It's the opposite of severity. That God is not a severe God. He's a kind God. He's kind particularly in the way He gives to people. Seeking to benefit those who need to be benefited by His kindness. That's a measure of the goodness of our God. That our God is kind. That He wants to bestow blessing on those who are in need. It's a wonderful way to think about our God. That He is a God who is kind. Our God is also filled, we're told, with loving kindness. And how can we understand that word? How can we understand our God better by by delving into that word? Well, I thought I'd give you a Greek lesson tonight. I know this is dangerous, right? Because I'm not a great Greek scholar. And you'd say, amen, neither am I. Um, But I'm going to use some of the Greek you already know, whether you knew you knew it or not. What does the city Philadelphia mean, right, whether it's in Asia Minor or in eastern Pennsylvania? What what does Philadelphia mean? We know it's the city of brotherly love, right? Now, why is it called the city of brotherly love? Because Philadelphia means in Greek brotherly love. The Phil part is the love part. The Adelphia is the brother part. Now, what on earth does this have to do with our passage? Well, here Paul doesn't say Philadelphia, the Philadelphia of God, but what does he say? Let me make sure I get it right. The philanthropia of God. You hear that same phil that means love, but here it's not love for brother, it's love for man. Right? Anthropology is not just a store in the mall, it's the study of man. Right? Anthro is that Greek sense of man. So this is not love for brother, Philadelphia, this is love for man. It's, the wor- it's, the, it's where we get our word philanthropy. Someone who's a philanthropist shows love for mankind. That's the end of the Greek lesson, and there will not be a test on this later. 
But what is the point of this to drive home? What drives God to be a Savior? It's that He's kind and He loves the human beings He's made. He loves His human beings that He has created in His image. And it's that that causes God to act. And you can't really separate out these two things. They're to be thought of as as a kind of hyphenated concept in Paul. God is just filled with a kindness and love for mankind. That's who our God is. That's who God the Savior is. That's where salvation comes from. That in Him He is filled with this kindness and love for humanity that causes Him to reach out as a Savior to those who are unlovable. To those who spend their time in malice and envy, in hatred. It's because God is kind. It's because God is filled with love for man that He reaches out in salvation. This is what motivates God to be a Savior. And where do we see that particularly in His saving work? Because Paul interestingly says, this is the kind of God God our Savior is. But there is a specific time when that kindness and love for mankind makes an appearance Maybe these words are so familiar to us that we can't really read them over and pay attention to them. We so know what's coming that we don't pause and meditate on them. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Hasn't God always been kind? Hasn't God always been filled with love for mankind? Yes, but when did that particularly make an appearance in this world? I bet you know where I'm going. It made an appearance in this world when Christ made an appearance in this world. Then God our Savior was seen. Then the kindness and loving kindness of our God was seen. We saw something of that this morning, didn't we? We thought about the ministry that Jesus exercised in Mark 3 and how he went around healing those who touched him, driving out the demons of those who beheld him. It's when we see the the kindness of God at work, the love for man at work, that Jesus is willing as the divine Son of God to be pawed by sinners in need of healing. Why does he do it? Because he's kind. And because he's filled with a love for mankind. That's when the the kindness and the love for man of God appeared in the world. When Jesus appeared in the world. And we got to see in time and history what that love looks like. And how that kindness is extended to us. It was seen by us in Christ when He came into the world, but particularly when He went to His cross. We see the kindness that drove Him to go to the cross for us. To suffer what He suffered in order that He would benefit us. The kindness and love for man that would drive him to endure the wrath of God in our behalf. To be him who knew no sin and to become sin for us 
then in him we would become the righteousness of God. That's when the loving kindness and goodness of God appeared in history. In the coming of Christ, but particularly in his death on the cross. That's what motivated Christ to be a Savior. And not only has that appeared in him, but it's appeared in us by his Spirit. Not just in time and history when he came into the world to save sinners, but in our time, in our history, as those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, he's made an appearance in us. And the loving kindness of God has visited us, and the goodness of God has visited us. And the Savior has come, motivated by that kindness and love for us. And in coming, He has saved us. By His appearance, He has saved us. So, Paul wants us to understand the motivation. Why did God save? And then he wants us to understand the means of our salvation. How did God save us? We're told that He saved us first according to His mercy. Again, reminding us that we have no righteous works that we can contribute to our salvation. Paul is so crystal clear here. We do not justify ourselves. We do not participate in our own justification by our works. It's not the righteous works that God saw in us that saved us. He saved us according to His mercy. One person said, God's mercy pities our miserable condition and removes us from it. His mercy is the expression of the freeness and unconditionalness of His love. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2 verse 4, God is rich in mercy. And because God is rich in mercy, He made us alive together with Christ and saved us by His grace. He saves us not because of what we have done. He saves us according to His mercy through washing. That's the way that God saves us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Being who we are, we needed a radical change. Being those living lives of malice and envy, being those who live lives of hatred, being who we were, we needed to be completely transformed. We needed to be washed. We needed to cease to be what we were. And salvation, really here, washing just means cleansing from sin. That's the kind of washing we needed, a washing that would cleanse us from sin. And what is involved in that washing that cleanses us from sin? Absolute recreation. This washing that transforms us is an absolute act of recreation. That's really what it means to be regenerated here. The washing of regeneration, to be made a new creation, to have a new beginning, to be transformed from what we were into something new. That's the washing that Christ has accomplished in us. It's a washing of regeneration. 
We've been washed and changed. We've been transformed. We're no longer what we were. We're recreated into something new. And there is a decisive moment when we pass from death to life. We usually call that regeneration, technically that rebirth. And that creates faith. And we, through that, God creates faith in us so that we believe and are justified. And then we know that when we are justified, God renews us by His Spirit so that we are sanctified. And Paul is really comprehending all of that work together. The new birth, the working in us so that we believe and are justified, the sanctifying work of the Spirit that renews us after the image of Christ. That's why he wants to drive home. This is a new creation that completely transforms who we are and makes us new. It renews us. It's not only a one-time change, but it's a continual change that will bring us finally to be in the image of God. We are justified and declared righteous by by the declaration of God in Christ, but then we are also, by the Spirit of Christ, made to be like Him. And Paul is comprehending the whole of our salvation there. All that God does for us in terms of this washing. Not just one act of regeneration, not even just one act of one declaration of justification, but the whole work of sanctification contemplated. So that day by day we are being made more and more like Christ. That's what salvation is from first to last. To be transformed from what we were, to be renewed by the Spirit until we are like Christ. That's what salvation is. That's how Paul describes this washing. And in doing so, he's giving an entire picture of salvation. And that's all why we want to make sure we distinguish between regeneration and justification and sanctification in our theology. We don't want to lose sight of that it's all the work of God by which he saves us. By which he brings us into conformity with the image of his son. I like how one person put it. Although justification is based on God's grace, nevertheless, the one who is justified by God's grace is also transformed by his spirit. These aspects go together and must not be set in any opposition to one another. We are justified by grace in the washing of the blood of Christ, and we are sanctified by the washing that was accomplished by the Spirit of Christ. And this is helpful because that's what baptism is picturing to us. The whole of our salvation. Not just one particular moment of it, but the whole of it that God promises to us. Think of that washing in light of what we confess about baptism in the Heidelberg Catechism. What does baptism picture to us? What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. What baptism helps to do is to signify and seal to us, or remind and assure us, that these things are true for us. Because as long as that remains outside of us, you can say that's a wonderful picture of salvation, but is it for me? Have I been washed with that washing? Or am I still what I was? 
And what does baptism say to everyone who's been baptized? The picture is not an abstract picture. It's applied to you. Right? The sacraments are personally applied. Right? If, if I just went to the baptismal font and opened it up and it just showed you some water and said, isn't that nice that there's water in the font? But no one ever came to be baptized. There would be something missing there. And that's what baptism does. It's assuring us this washing that Paul is talking about is applied to you personally. By faith in Christ, that washing becomes yours and all of your salvation is completed by Christ. It's the washing that will bring you from death to life, from first to last. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's not half a savior. He saves to the uttermost. And that's what the washing in baptism is assuring us. Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and Spirit wash away my soul's impurities, that is, all my sins. You see, the promises that are made in God's Word we're reminded of and assured of in our baptisms. That the goodness and the loving kindness of our Savior has appeared to us and in us and upon us. We are washed with a washing that speaks to us of that blood that washes away our sins. And that spirit that brought us from death to life and will bring us into full conformity with the Son of God who will sanctify us, renewing us day after day until we are like Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit has been poured out richly upon us, as we're told by our Lord Jesus Christ, at the command of His Father, so the water is poured out on us at the command of Christ, so that we would be reminded and assured of the great promises of the Scripture, that the blood and Spirit of Christ will wash away the pollution of our souls. That's the means by which we're saved. According to His mercy, He has washed us in His blood and Spirit with that washing of regeneration and renewal. And why has God done this? Why does God save us? Um, we might be tempted to answer, because I need saving. Um, But this text gives us a different answer. Why does God save us? What is the purpose of our salvation? Um, That He might make us heirs. Right? Look at look at what the text says. According to His own mercy, verse uh, verse five. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. Why does God do all this to save us? Because out of His kindness and out of His love for us, He wants to make us heirs of all that's His. To bring us into His family so He might bestow on us everything that is His, so that we could be made heirs of everything that belongs to our Father in heaven. 
Again, isn't that a wonderful extension of that kindness and love He has for us, that He wants us to have everything that's His? And that inheritance is comprehended under that idea of eternal life. To make us heirs particularly of eternal life. It's wonderful to think that that's why God wants to save us. Because He wants to bring us into His family. He wants to bestow upon us everything that is His. He wants us to be heirs. To have eternal life with Him. He loves us so much that He wants to spend eternity with us. It's hard to understand why. Right? When we read passages like, He's not ashamed to be called our brother, I want to say, why? Shouldn't he be? And this is the wonderful reality of salvation that God loves us so much, has extended his love to us so much, has showed us his goodness and loving kindness in that he wants to spend eternity with us. And he knows that unsaved, we can't spend eternity with him. That he won't spend eternity with those he loves. And so he moves heaven and earth to save us so that we might live with him. An eternity lived with the God who saved us. The God who loves us that much. Who has shown such undeserved kindness to us. And so the response for God's people then to this rich salvation is hope. Is to hope in these things that God has promised. Because we feel all the time like God doesn't want to spend eternity with me. Um, I remember talking to a, to a high school kid once who was struggling with this, and he said, I sort of feel like I believe in Jesus, and because he's made that deal, he's going to let me in in the end, but he's not really going to be happy that I'm there. And I was so thankful that he was that honest about how he felt. That God was going to kind of let him in the door, but he wasn't really going to be happy that he was there. Sort of, I've technically promised this, and you've, you've made it through the bar. You're high enough to ride this ride, so I guess you can come in. But I'm really not interested in seeing you once you're here. I think he was expressing, maybe not in a way we would express it, but a fear that we all have. That God really doesn't want to save a sinner like me. That God really doesn't want to fellowship with a sinner like me. And the wonderful promise of the gospel is he does. He's proved it to you, to you and to me in every way he can. I had a son that I loved. I gave him to you. He's the most precious thing I have. If I didn't hold that back from him, what do you think would cause me not to give, him to, get, to give you anything else? If my kindness is extended to that, what won't my kindness extend to? Because he wants us to live in hope. Right? According to the hope of eternal life. That's why God preaches His gospel to us so clearly. That's why He reminds us and assures us of it by putting water on us. So that we would live lives of hope. Not wondering if these things are true, but knowing that these things are true. Because He has promised. He has signified and sealed that promise. And there's nothing that can annul His promise. He wants us to live 
lives of hope. And we should look back to our baptisms and hope in that. That God didn't just make a broad, indiscriminate promise. He made a promise to me. He promised that He would be my God. And He promised that I would be His child. And He made it so sure that He said, you will have no doubt that water washes away dirt from the body. You should have no doubt that the blood and the Spirit of Christ will wash away your sin. I want you to know that. I want you to be sure about it because I want you to live in hope. One person said, you know, God makes the promise to us. That's the Godward direction of the promise. The manward response is hope. That's the answer to the promise of God, to hope and to have that sure hope that because God has promised, I will be saved. Because God has promised, I will inherit eternal life. I can hope because He's done it all. It wasn't something in me that motivated him. It began in him with his kindness and his love. It wasn't something that I had to continue. He did it. He cleansed me by washing me with Christ's blood and spirit. Even though I'm justified by faith, faith is his gift worked in me by the Holy Spirit. So even the instrument I needed to take hold of Christ and His benefits, He gave to me as a gift. From first to last, it's all of God. And the passage begins by the affirma- or ends with the affirmation of our standing in justification. Being justified, being justified, leaves no doubt for us where our justification lies. We are justified by His grace. Past tense, accomplished act. We have been justified. The declaration has already been made. So for those who have faith in Christ, they know the declaration has already been made, not guilty. And why does God want us to know that? Because He has made us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And wants us to live in hope, assured of his kindness, not just to others, but to me too. That's why baptism is given, to help us remind us and assure ourselves of these things. We went through our our book study. We we noted that's how Martin Luther used to re-encourage himself in the midst of temptation and difficulty. He would say to himself, I am a baptized man. We talked in that Bible study about how often do we look to our baptisms as a source of encouragement. When we're feeling doubts and we're having those dark nights of the soul, how often do we look to baptism? We should look more often. Because it's there that Jesus has said to us, I will wash you. You cannot come to me as you are, and so I will transform you by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Spirit, so that being justified by grace, you might be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is from Him first to last. Baptism is reminding us of that. It's assuring us of that so that we would live in hope. He assures us that we will inherit the promise of eternal life on account of the work of our triune God. God, our Savior, 
the Father who sent His Son in love, the Son who appeared and revealed the character of the Father and who poured out the Spirit on us richly so that we might receive our inheritance. Baptism reminds us of that and assures us of that. May we lean on God's Word and on His promises and on the, the, the sign and the seal of His promises and set our hope on the glory that awaits all of, all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. May all here believe in Him and know for certain that we will receive honor and glory forever and ever as His sons, even as we hope in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we read what kind of people we were, that we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, we marvel that you should love sinners like us. And yet in your goodness and your mercy, your loving kindness for man, you sent your Son into the world to save us, that He has washed us, that He has poured out His Spirit on us richly so that we would know that you love us, that you would make us heirs so we would inherit eternal life and live with you in blessedness forever. It can still be too good for us to believe it's true. But help us to hope in those things. Help us to look to our baptisms as signs of encouragement the believers who set our hope on the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed, for no one has trusted in you in vain. That you will do as you promised. You have justified us. You have washed us in Christ. You will make us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so may we always trust and hope in you and praise you as the God who's done it. Hear our prayers and receive our thanks, we pray, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.